The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. I feel very loved. The DeRoshis got a surprise this week. And it was a phone call on Tuesday from our adoption caseworker. Three weeks ago, we felt the Lord, some things were going on in our spirits. We thought, well, maybe, maybe God might surprise us. We need to be ready for that. We don't know what that would be. So we got a call on Tuesday with a surprise. And it rocked us a little bit because um, it didn't align with our adoption paperwork. Welcome. So let me let me see if I can Okay, that's not where I want to be. Whoops. We have twins. So that was the phone call. We have twins, and we don't have any home for them. Would you and Teresa consider twins? And we prayed and um, wrestled. Part of the wrestling was just trying to see how would we fit them into our home. Um, I don't know if we can fit that many bottoms around our kitchen table with the size of our dining room and the boys' bedroom. We can't put another bed in it. Um, But the Lord began to show us how this might work, and um, swapping bedrooms around, me moving out my office, getting benches around the kitchen table instead of chairs. We'll still need a new van, because ours doesn't hold eight. (laughs) Never thought of myself as a father of six, but God is good. Satota is the girl on the left, Wendemagen, we're calling him Wendem, is the boy on the right. We'll fix the pink when he arrives. <clears throat> Such a mercy, two little children that turned three in a week and a half that need a mommy and a daddy. And uh, so we're on the fast track. Most likely, even this summer, we'll be making two trips to Ethiopia. And maybe by the time we start class next fall, Lord willing, we'll have two extra ones and a new van. So as the Lord puts Teresa and me and our four at home on your minds, you can pray in these ways. First of all, pray for these little treasures 
They're broken. They're going through big trauma. And as our little Ezra, I was talking to him this week. We brought Ezra home from Ethiopia a year and a half ago. And I said, what are you thinking about this? He said, they need to get out of the orphanage. He knows, he remembers, and he knows the beauty of family. And um, we don't know what we're getting into here. But as we were reminded two weeks ago, Luke 12, 32 through 34, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give to the needy. And as you sell, you're actually gaining. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. That's not what it says. It is what it says? Grow old. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's really been a beacon for me. And as we wrestled, even before we got the pictures, all I could, all I could see was these four eyes looking up at me, and it was Jesus. And I didn't want to shut the door and say I had no room. So we don't know what we're doing. If you asked Teresa, she would have said, I was a mother of three. Four was beyond me. Six is beyond us. What a gift of mercy. Because God opposes the proud but gives much grace to the humble. So pray for these two little lives that need much healing and much love. Pray too for our family as a whole on this side of the ocean as God readies our hearts. We have no idea what this transition bringing in two traumatized kids into our home, how that will affect Ezra who's still carrying baggage. Um, There will be three brothers in one room, three sisters in another room. And we pray that our home would be a haven where healing can happen, where grace can reign. Finally, this is just real. Stepping out into another adoption just a year after our previous one, first one cost us $40,000 and God's saying we need to move in again. That was one of the fears we had to overcome. God, how do we do this knowing that we can't do this without people surrounding us? And, uh, and we felt the Lord leading us. We were within $7,000 of being done. And now we're back up to 20 plus in need of an eight passenger vehicle. So pray with us. We've got a great God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. When he speaks, things move. We're not worried about that. Um, It's just a lot. And um, our God does lots of things. If the Lord would put it on your heart, that's Teresa's adoption blog and there's information on there about Um, the team that we're working with 
um, Life Song for Orphan and um, a great ministry. So we rejoice. We've got two new kids coming home really soon and we ask that you'd pray with us. Two years ago, it was my last Sunday school class before the end of the year that I gave Ezra's picture up on the screen and um, that journey was a little longer than we had anticipated and you walked with us through that. Um, So two more. God expands our home and we pray that he will ultimately expand his kingdom in the lives of these two little, little children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't want to fail to live for your glory. It comes in so many different ways for each of us. The journey that you have us on, so many different paths to glory, all in Christ. I thank you for the one that you've set me on, that you continue to show yourself worthy of our trust. I pray you would do the same for those in this room. We praise you for your great faithfulness. Thank you for love from this class toward my family. Even in the quotes that were shared, I feel very loved. The laughter, because people could connect with me. They know me and it's such a blessing for me to be part of this ministry, part of this class, these seven years, getting to teach the last six. I thank you for your faithfulness to our church. Tonight we will gather to vote as a sign of your great provision and care We want to give you praise. May we not forget you. May we honor you and give thanks to you. Open your word to us this morning. In Jesus, I ask such things. All right, the copier this morning wasn't working, not only for me, but for many. So I have blank sheets of paper. Sorry about that. Um, But if you want to take notes, You can. Thank you. Turn to the book of Judges, chapter 2. Israel's Canaanization. What does that mean? What? They became like Canaan. That's what happened progressively in their lives because they didn't get rid of it from their lives. So, we are in verse 11 of chapter 2. Up on the screen is a bronze idol. A bronze idol, figurine, of the Canaanite god Ale. Should sound like Elohim. It's related to the same word. It just means God very creative in their identification of their gods. They called him God. And this one is found from the period of the judges. It's found in the same city that that altar was in that I showed you last week. Megiddo on the northern 
um, part of Israel and where the tribe of Manasseh failed to get rid of all the Canaanites in Megiddo. And because of that, the worship of other gods persisted. And here's an ancient relic. Here's what we read in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Right after we've learned that a new generation arose that did not know God or his work. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals. They did what was evil in God's sight and they served the Baals. Then they abandoned Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. How quickly they forgot past grace. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. They bowed down to them and they provoked Yahweh to anger. This is a book that unpacks that. Six different judges are spoken of in this book and all of them have the same story. Oh, it's a different judge and it's a different enemy and that judge comes from a different tribe. So we have six tribes, six enemies and yet it's the same story of degeneration in the lives of Israel. Every one of the judges begins, their stories begin in the same way. So if you just turn with me, this is where we ended last week. That phrase, and the people of Israel did what was right, did what was evil rather in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals, that is a tagline that we now read six more times in the book in front of every single episode of the Judges. So you look in chapter 3, verse 1. I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 7, before the story of Othniel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord with Ehud. Then Deborah and Barak. And the people, chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then we have to jump ahead to Gideon. That's the first unit. Three judges shapes the first unit of the book. Then everything goes further downhill into degeneracy. Chapter 6, verse 1 doesn't begin with and. It's a fresh beginning in the book, but it's the second of third triads. And now we read of Gideon's judgeship. And the story begins, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then we jump to chapter 10, verse 6, as we move into Jephthah. The people of Israel, it starts actually with and, and the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then Samson, the very last dude, chapter 13, verse 1, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the theme, and we're supposed to feel it. And so part of our day today is going to be trying to unpack the nature of this evilness. Rather than what was doing what was pleasing to God, what was good in His sight, they did what was evil. And in doing so, God's wrath justly came upon them. 
Hell doesn't exist because God is bad. Hell exists because God is a very good judge. He gives those sinners what they're due. And we in this room would be recipients of the same were it not for God's wrath being poured out on a substitute. We're back in chapter 2. And what we're going to do is look at this pattern that flows through the book. The pattern is set up in the first two ch- in the chapter 2. It's it's a cycle, but not just a cycle with four stages, it's actually a downward spiral in four stages. And you'll see why I say it's, it's going downward. Every one of these cycles of judges moves deeper and deeper and deeper into the pit. So let's see how it plays out. I want to look at this idea of idolatry for a second. That's what it says was at stake. The people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They abandoned God to serve the Baals. One means of that downfall, look in chapter 3, verse 6. Beginning in verse 5, the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites because they didn't get rid of them. They lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Now just keep that in mind. Look right at verse 6 in chapter 3, and I'm going to read you Deuteronomy 7, verse 3 and 4. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of Yahweh would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. That's in Israel's Bible. And we read the history of the covenant in light of the covenant, and if we've got ears to hear, as soon as we read verse 6 of chapter 3, their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to the pagan sons, and they served other gods. We would be hearing in our ears the ringing of Deuteronomy 7, which is the text that first called Israel most clearly to destroy the Canaanites. Why? Because they're going to be an obstacle for your living. Where do you have obstacles that you allow to persist in your own life? That is the question at hand. One of the means by which Israel fell was dating non-believers. It's right there. And the dating gave rise to marriage, interfaith marriage. One result of this downfall, we're told in Judges 10.13. We are... um, I'm thinking during Jephthah... Yes, just before Jephthah is called as judge, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the Mayanites oppressed Israel. They oppressed you and and you cried out to me, God says. 
and I saved you out of their hand. And yet, in response, you forsake me. You have forsaken me and you've served other gods. Therefore, this is what God says, I will save you no more. Not only that, he goes on, go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Sin leads to destruction. It will always lead to destruction. Do not presume on grace. Do not presume that you'll always have a chance to ask forgiveness. The verse that follows is what came to my mind. It's specifically a verse in the New Covenant targeted towards husbands. But it's, it shows that sin can have a direct relationship to praying. And that a husband's prayers to God can be thwarted. God can stop listening to the men in this room if you're not loving your wives as you're supposed to. It's very striking. So what does it say? Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Fragile, precious. She's the china, you're the corral. Why? Because they're heirs with you of the grace of life. Why love them this way? So that your prayers are not hindered. It happens. This isn't just an old covenant reality. God can stop listening to you. He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And if you're trying to pray with a hardened heart, if there's a blindness in the way that you're treating your spouse, God will stop listening. It's, it's amazing. But it's real. Sin is real. And God takes it very seriously. And you cannot make it without prayer. You cannot make it without a connection with God, a relationship with God. That's just a side. Back into Judges. God stops listening to Israel's prayers because their hearts are hard. Don't get me wrong. Where there's true repentance, real mercy will come. God listens to the prayer of the repentant. But when there is one who refuses to align himself with the Lord, to align herself with the Lord, God need not listen to anybody's prayer. An example of the downfall. Turn with me to Judges 17 through 18. There's a lot of irony in this little story. After we get through the Judges, there's two episodes at the end of the book. This is the first one. And it's designed to help give illustrative example of how bad Israel got, how blind they got. Israel began to look like the idols that they were serving, having eyes that did not see, having ears that did not hear. So we're in Judges 17. Here's the story. There's a man named Micah who had a wealthy mom. 
Micah steals the silver of his mom. Apparently it was quite a bit of silver, 1,100 pieces. Jesus was sold for 30. Micah steals his mom's silver and then he gets a guilty conscience. And he comes back and he gives the silver to mom. The prodigal child comes home. And mom says, verse 3, I dedicate the silver to Yahweh from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Something in your reading should pause you. You should say, I think there's a disconnect. For the sake of the Lord, I'm going to dedicate all this 1,100 pieces of silver to God, and the way that we're going to dedicate him is we're going to make a carved image. Not only that, I'm going to make my son a priest. And he's going to have his own little worship commune, and all is going to be well. So that's what happens. Verse 5, the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod, that's a priestly garment, and he had household gods and he ordained one of his sons who became his priest. Verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Lest we think that anything right is happening here, the commentary, the the narrator intrudes with commentary and says there's something wrong here. You're supposed to read that this is wrong. We call it syncretism. When people say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but they don't live like it. There's disconnect in their lives with what they think about and what they look at, how they dress and how they talk. There's a disconnect with what's actually ruling their heart when they go to the closet in the morning and they decide what they're going to wear or when they come home at night and they decide how they're going to spend their time. There's something other than God that's ruling their heart. This book is not guiding their lives. They're making it up as they go. Oh, but God's on their map. Yahweh is on the radar. His name is used. And yet the beginning of the book said, within a single generation they forgot the Lord and the work that he had done. So they didn't forget his name. The forgetfulness of this book is not a forgetfulness of I don't know, even know who Jesus is. I don't know who God is. No, it's not that. It's a forgetfulness of syncretism. You've forgotten the bigness of God, the beauty of God, the glory of God, so much so that other treasures, other delights, other passions are able to come in and overrule at any given point. That's what's happening in this book. And it could be happening in our hearts. In those days, there was no king in Israel. What are we supposed to hear there? Anybody? There was no king in Israel. What? Israel needed the right king. And they're running from him. This really sets us up for the book of Samuel. When finally David comes. When the offspring, the the picture of the offspring of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent, the scepter will not depart from Judah. 
When you enter into the land and you say, I want a king like the nations, you may have a king, says Deuteronomy 17, the king of my choosing. He must be an Israelite. He must not give himself over to wealth, over to women, over to military power, but rather he must copy for himself this book, the Torah, the book of the Deuteronomy, not the Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, and it must be with him, and he must read it every single day because only when he's a man of the book will he remember that he is a man under God's authority and he will not allow himself to lift his heart up above his countrymen. And then we move into Judges. There's no king, no king. God's not the king. The Messiah hasn't come, and there's chaos. It doesn't just show up here. The story continues. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. In those days there was no king in Israel. Chapter 19, verse 1. In those days there was no king in Israel. Chapter 21, verse 25, very last verse in the book. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We're supposed to get this out of the book. So we come back to our story. Micah has made his son a priest. But then... On comes a Levite from Judah. Levite in the tribe of Aaron. Sorry, in the descent, a descendant of Aaron. And he says, oh, you're a little more official. Would you mind living with me and I'll make you a priest? Top dog in my household. The Levite says, sounds good. So he ordains this Levite as the official high priest of his little temple worship. It's getting worse. Now the story actually begins. That's just the setting. And the story is that the tribe of Dan, chapter 18, has not found a home yet. So they go on a reconnaissance mission. They send up some men and they happen to stop at Micah's house, the man who's rebel turned repentant who's got a son who's a priest and now a Levite who's a priest and they stop there and they note that this guy has his own little church happening in his house and the Danites not only do we have a problem with Micah we have the problem of an entire tribe that's what we're supposed to see we're supposed to feel it that an entire tribe is going to ask Micah and his Levite to pray for them. Are we on a successful journey? Are we going to get a land? And he prays, and this is what we read. Verse 6, Go in peace, the journey on which you go is under the eye of Yahweh. And off they go. They run back. They tell, and oh, off they go. After this, they find a plot. It's a city. And the city is filled with Um, Sidonians so they're in southern Israel and Sidon is way up north sorry southern Israel Sidon is in the uh, is in Lebanon north west Israel and they say This group of Sidonians is way far from their home. There's nobody to protect them. Let's take their city. So Dan comes and they say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take the city. But in route, they stop at Micah's house 
They grab the Levite, grab the household gods and say, Levite, wouldn't you rather be the priest for an entire tribe rather than just one man? The Levite thinks this is a great idea. So he leaves. Now listen to the words of Micah. Verse 24 of chapter 18. Micah says, you take my gods that I made. Oh, the blindness of that. Do you hear it? You take my gods that I made. He's speaking blatant truth, and he doesn't see the irony. You take my gods that I made, and the priest, and you go away, and what if I have left? What if I have, what do I have, and what have I left? That's what I meant. And what have I left? And we, the reader, are saying, how about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? But he doesn't even have a clue. God is not ultimately on his radar screen, even though he can use the word, oh, Yahweh, Yahweh. But he's not viewing him as the causer of all things, as the God who of first and the last, the beginning and the end, the biggest one who created all things, who holds Micah's very breath What do I have if you take away my gods that I have made? That's what they are, brothers and sisters. Constructs of our own mind. This is where I find my greatest pleasure. This is what's most satisfying to me. It's, it's right for me. I'm the king of my own life. It's right for me to be angry with my children in the way that I am to hold the bitterness toward my parents that I do, to look at pornography like I do. I'm the king. I shape what is good. I'm shaping it, and all of a sudden you take it away from me? It gets a little more humorous. It's actually not. It's an irony of deep sadness. Dan goes... They overcome this town where the Sidonians lived and they set up their little temple. Look at verse 30. And the people of Dan set up the carved images for themselves and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. And then there's a little footnote next to the word Moses. What's the footnote say? Manasseh. Who was Manasseh? Anybody remember? He was a king from Israel in the north or Judah in the south? Judah in the south, exactly. He's in the line of David much, much, much later than this. Was he a good king or a bad king? bad king. In the book of Kings, he's the worst of all the kings. Why? Because he's fulfilling child sacrifice. And we're supposed to read that and remember Genesis 3.15. The hope of the nation is through the offspring of the woman. And here's a king in the line of Judah who's doing away with the very kids that are pictures of hope. Generation after generation after generation. So, 
what we have is that the author of the book of Judges, who may very well have been after Manasseh, that's the challenge with what I'm about to show you, who very well may have been after Manasseh. Manasseh was not the son of Gershom. That's Moses. But somebody, some scribe went in, and you can see the top one. That's a Hebrew, Moshe. But the difference between Moshe and Manasseh in Hebrew is one letter. There's very few manuscripts that actually say Moses. So we're not sure whether Moses was the original. It's very clear in the text Moses is indeed the one they're talking about. But at least some scribe much later, or maybe even the original author, put a little N. That's what that raised little letter is. It's the Hebrew letter N. They put an N between the M and the SH. He's not from Moses. He's from Manasseh. That's his line. That's his identity. He's of the serpent, not an offspring of the woman. So that's what that little footnote means at that point. We're not sure because most of the manuscripts either have a raised N or they just spell the whole thing out, M-N-S-H. No vowels in the original Hebrew. So you could have had a scribe later that said, this isn't Manasseh, guys. We know it's Moses, and he wrote it back to say, no, this is supposed to be Moses. Moses is the son of Gershom. Or it could have been an ironic, like originally the author could have been saying ironically, I know it's Moses, but this is not what Moses called for. This is Manasseh stuff, not Moses stuff. Either way, somehow, sometime in the history of Jewish tradition, very early, way before the New Testament, this is, the commentary is already being made. This is wrong. So that's just an example of Israel's idolatry. Now turn with me back to Judges 2. We want to unpack the rest of the story and how it works. That's where Israel is. The whole book is about them giving in to temptation and seduction. And here we read God's response. And it's not just his first response, it's the response that we're going to see is recurring through the rest of the cycle. Judges chapter 2. So when you read the story, this is how you're supposed to be thinking. It's setting us up. The introduction gives us the whole story right off the bat. So the people of Israel did what was right in their own eyes. Verse 11, they abandoned the Lord and went after the idols. Verse 14, here's God's response. First step, idolatry. Step two, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers. This didn't happen randomly, it was judgment when the Midians came, Midianites came in or when the Philistines came up or when the Syrians came down, all of that was controlled by God. And it should have woken Israel up. Sin is bad. I need to run from it. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Enemy oppression, that's stage two. Whenever they marched out, the hand of Yahweh was not for them, it was against them for harm. 
Then it says something, and I want you to help me with it. The hand of the Lord was against them for harm as Yahweh had warned and as the Lord had sworn. We're reading our Bibles. We get to this point in the history and that tells us we need to think carefully backwards. When did God warn them that His anger would be kindled? When did He swear to them that if they run after other gods, it will not go well with them? When? Deuteronomy. Oh, I like that book, yeah. It's the lens, brothers and sisters, for helping us understand the story. The rest of the story of all of Scripture, Deuteronomy anticipates the new covenant. It moves us all the way through to new creation. That's why it was one of Jesus' top three favorites. One of Paul's top three favorites. All those blessings and curses that come in Deuteronomy 28, this is right part of the, cl- the curses. Enemy oppression is one of the curses. Just as God warned. And what was Israel's, how were they supposed to respond? When the, when the curses came, what was Israel supposed to do? We jumped over this when we were in Leviticus. So I'm going to remind us. The two big chapters, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, they lay out the blessings, curses, and restoration blessings of the Old Covenant. Just listen to how Deuteronomy, Leviticus 26, talks about what God's purpose is in the curse. If you do not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease, with fever and consume, that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if, in spite of this, you will not listen to me, Then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins and I will break the pride of your power and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze and your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, then I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins and I will let loose the wild beast against you which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. Are you getting the pattern? What's the pattern? What's the purpose of divine discipline? To bring us back. To bring us back. The tower falls, killing 18 in Jerusalem. Were they more, were they more wicked than us that, that they died? Jesus says, no, they were not more wicked than you. But heed this, if you do not learn from their judgment and repent, the same judgment will fall upon you that fell on them. Divine discipline of this nature is a blessing in disguise for those who are able to learn from it. The anger of the Lord was against Israel for harm just as he had warned them. Stage two. 
Let's move on. Verse 16, And the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. He raised up judges for them. These are not law court officials. These are royal deliverers who will bring judgment on God's enemies. Verse 17, Yet Israel did not listen to their judges. For they whored after other gods and they bowed down to them. They soon turned from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandment of Yahweh and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up the judge for them, the Lord was with the judge. He saved them from the hand of their enemies. Why? Here's stage three. Why did God save Israel from the hand of their enemies? For Yahweh was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. So I'm supplying stage three from that verse. Idolatry leads to enemy oppression, which leads to, oh God, help me, and mercy comes through the deliverance supplied by the judge. That's the pattern right there. But notice what it says in verse 19. This is why I don't just call it six cycles of disobedience. I call it six cycles of downwardly spiraling disobedience. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. All it takes is a generation. All it takes is for you to stand up and say, I will not follow in the ways of my forefathers. I will not act like I was treated or like it was modeled to me. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, you have been ransomed from the futile ways of your forefathers through the precious blood of Christ. Oh, that someone could have risen up. When we get to Samuel, we're going to see it. Oh, yes, there is one, a woman named Hannah. From the same period, there's two. There's a Boaz in Bethlehem, and there's a Ruth. So the anger of the Lord, verse 20, was kindled against Israel, and he said, because of this, because this people has transgressed my covenant that I commanded, they've not obeyed my voice, I'm not going to do away with all the nations that Joshua left when he died. Why? In order to test them. I will test Israel, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. That's the introduction of the book. And then we see who these nations are that God left, and then it enters us into six cycles of downwardly spiraling disobedience. So we've got six guys. Thrown into the middle of them are a few governors. So it can be a little bit difficult to track, but it's that statement, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes that gives me the structure of this section of the book. And in every story, Othniel who starts things out, he's the only judge that doesn't sniff with some form of disobedience. Every other judge goes downhill and yet appears to be redeemed at the end. In the book of Hebrews, what do we see? Oh, that I could tell you of Gideon and Jephthah and Samson, 
But that doesn't mean we're to read everything about their lives as good. In fact, most of their lives seem very bad. When I look at the life of Samson, I see nothing in him that is good until the final end. When he gives his heart over to the Lord, is willing to be sacrificed with the rest of the wicked, and he says, oh God, give me the strength to bring judgment on the Philistines. And he pushes the pillars. Jephthah offers his daughter as a sacrifice Some people try to read it otherwise. I I right now don't know how to read it otherwise. I don't think his daughter was left to a lifelong virginity separate from all of humanity. I think he vowed to the Lord, the first thing that comes out of my house will die. It was his daughter and it was a foolish vow and rather than repenting from his sin, he killed his daughter. But then it's followed directly by a story where he truly is surrendered to the Lord, and I think that's his expression of faith, not the slaying of his own. I just want to summarize the, the, the depth of doing what is right in their own eyes that I see in this book and allow it to, I just want you to feel it, to try to help us see what we're supposed, to, to, to feel what we're supposed to feel, this longing that this is dark and it is not good. Erosion of thought hesitancy of Barak. I think there's an unswerving message in Scripture that suggests military battle is not for women. But he's hesitant to be the man that he's supposed to be and that's part of the message of this book. His hesitancy, Deborah, if you don't go with me, I'm not going into battle. He doesn't have the view that David had that we heard of this morning. Idolatry of Gideon that turns him and his entire family over to paganism for a season. The foolish vow of Jephthah, Samson's poor choice of women. He's not thinking in godly categories. Benjamin's foolish defense of the immorality. Gibeah Remember, they come in, it's the Gibeah, the men of Gibeah who rise up and want to sleep with the Levite. And he gives him his concubine and they ravish her through the night. Going back two weeks ago, even though I had read it in a commentary, what I was saying in here, and I thought it was a point to show the depth of depravity, I, I think she was dead before the man, before her Levite guy showed up. I went back, re-looked at the text. I think Gordy was right on. He's not here today. So she was dead, ravished through the night and then dead on 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 the doorstep. And then he dices her up and sends her out to the 12 tribes of Israel to show how bad it has gotten. But Benjamin comes and tries to protect those of Gibeah rather than also affirming what they're doing is wrong. They're thoughtless. Their their mind has become degenerate. They've been given over to the abased mind, and what they need is a renewed mind. That's the world of judges. The erosion of relationships, we see it. The only positive relationship that I see in this book is in the very first chapter when Caleb is willing to give his daughter, Aksa, over to whoever will be the first to uh, go in and destroy those in Hebron, I think. 
Anyway, um, no, Kiriath Sefer. Whoever goes in and attacks, I'll give him my, my daughter as his wife. And Othniel rises up. And the whole story there is very positive and it's very beautiful, the marriage. And then after that, it's the last relationship in the book that I see even sniffs of anything positive. Instead, what we get is a father sacrifices his daughter. Samson has illicit relationships with pagan prostitutes. And then there's numerous brutal, superficial marriages where husbands are not at all treating their wives as they're supposed to. And that leads me to this. This is a key part of this book. And it sets us up for the story that starts the book of Samuel. Where Hannah has another wife right next to her. Something that should not be. But Hannah was barren and I think that's why her husband had married another. That's oppression. Here's what we see of Aksa. She was blessed by her father rather than being killed by her. She inspired a man to great acts of obedience rather than seducing him. She married within the covenant community rather than taking a Canaanite spouse. That's as good as it gets. Everything else is down. Jael is forced into the unlikely role of military hero because Barak refused to accept his mission without the aid of a woman. Jephthah's daughter becomes the innocent victim of her father's foolish decision. Samson's wife and father-in-law are burned to death as a consequence of his actions. This is not how it should be and we should read it with rage. The Levite's unnamed concubine. She's not even given a name as if to show us it's gone down to the level that she's lost her identity. She has no ultimate personhood. And this is not how it should be. This is the opposite of a husband loving his wife as his own body. And she's brutalized, killed, dismembered. All the women of Benjamin are destroyed by the civil war and then the women found from other tribes to replace them were either internationally internationally orphaned by brutal destruction of their immediate families or simply kidnapped by desperate Benjamite bachelors. That's the story of Judges. Women reading this book should not read the book and say that's how it's supposed to be. This is Sinful exploitation of women. This is a low view of women that is trying to show the degeneracy to which Israel has gone. And it should cause us to cringe and say, no, this is not right. Who will fix this? Because I'm too small. The erosion of rule. The powerful exploit the weak. Chaos prevails. There was no... In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this book, in such a graphic way, sets us up screaming, Oh, when will the king come? When will the king come? When we read the darkness, it's supposed to have us long for noon. And at this moment, dawn hasn't even Come, But then we move into Samuel and Samuel begins to tell us reminding us of those promises that started way back in Genesis to help us say, to, to rekindle hope and yet not even David will line up and it'll say you've got to keep looking but the hope has been rekindled. But this picture is horrible intentionally so. 
the king has come. And he has power to restore relationships and to help us overcome sin, to help us not be like those that raised us or the models that we should have had but didn't. He's that kind of a king who can take brokenness and make something beautiful, who takes the fragile and treats it with honor. That's our king. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not blow out. Thanks be to God. This kind of brokenness we can be redeemed from. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for your grace and your goodness. Be a rock, a strong tower, a helper. For those in this room that need to repent, move them in that way and may they see Jesus as the reigning one, the only Savior. For those who need care, who have felt oppressed, I pray that you would be a helper, a very present, tender, gentle caregiver who heals broken hearts, mends wounds, and causes growth. Thank you for your faithfulness through Jesus to overcome such darkness, to make it possible for orphans to have parents and for wounded women to find redemption and love. To the one who is able to do such things beyond what we could ever ask or think, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.